0: The year 1866 was signalised by a remarkable incident, a mysterious and puzzling phenomenon which doubtless no one has yet forgotten not to mention rumours which agitated the maritime population and excited the public mind even in the interior of continents. Seafaring men were particularly excited. Merchants, common sailors, captains of vessels, skippers both of Europe and America, naval officers of all countries, and the governments of several states on the two continents were deeply interested in the matter. For some time past, vessels had been met by an enormous thing, a long object spindle-shaped, occasionally phosphorescent, and infinitely larger and more rapid in its movements than a whale. That is the opening to Jules Verne's seminal work of science fiction, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and unfortunately the enormous thing was not lung cancer, it was not ALK mutations, but I think carries a similar sentiment, because this is the first episode, as mentioned at the end of our last episode, our interview with Ash, if you haven't listened to that, please go back and listen to it, that we are entitling, or that I'm entitling unilaterally, Josh has had no say in this, 20,000 leagues under the lung cancer. In this series, we are going to talk about non-EGFR mutations. We've spent a lot of time talking about Adora and Flora and all of the other auras, but we're going to talk about some of the others. Give them a chance in the limelight. Josh, how are you going? I hope you enjoyed my introduction of uh, Jules Verne, who uh, who I don't think has ever been associated with oncology. Michael, you never cease to amaze
1: me with your esoteric introductions, but I think I got to 20,000 leagues first, so I'm pretty happy. It was one of our prior episodes, and I was Captain
0: Nemo for that episode. It was beautiful. Yes, you do do a good uh, Captain Nemo. <laughs> a good, <laughs> thank you, thank you. I, I, yes, yes, you're very good at going mad right at the end and disappearing into the ocean. Spoilers. That
1: is, oh, is that. That's the end. <laughs> it's been a very long time since I read Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Um, <laughs> oh boy, shall we? Shall we get cracking on this week's episode?
0: Yes, please. Please uh, introduce uh, the first mutation that we're going to talk about and we're going to spend an entire episode on it, which is ALK yep. mutations, Josh, as we as we dive down beneath EGFR and into the subterranean. Through the hemisphere. bronchi, into the bronchioles and the parenchyma
1: that is the lungs. ALK, anaplastic lymphoma kinase. It's a tyrosine kinase known to be expressed in multiple tumour types. In non-small cell lung cancer, our topic today, you find that in about 3 to 5% of tumors. Now, detecting ELK gene rearrangements is paramount to treatment. Why? Stay tuned and you will find out. So there are some unique clinical features for ELK tumors. So brain mets are more common in ELK-positive non-small cell lung cancers compared to those who lack it or EGFR inhibitors, mostly in patients that have never or lightly smoked and a younger age. About a median age of 52, although not always guaranteed like everything in medicine, nothing is guaranteed. The majority of patients with ELK mutations have adenocarcinoma rather than squamous cell carcinoma, although there's a small amount that can be squamous cell carcinoma. I feel I'm just covering myself, Michael, with everything I say. It's mostly this, but there's always a chance of something else.
0: I'm sorry, did you just describe medicine as a whole?
1: Yes, and oncology. So you need you need molecular testing for the diagnosis and that's really the starting point of any lung cancer. And the question you're then going is like, I have a mutation, do we have something to target this? Well, this is the episode where you get to find out. First you assess for elk, second you realize that first generation TKI crizotinib is not particularly good with the phase three data showing prolongation of PFS objective response rate and quality of life, but no overall survival data with a hazard ratio of 0.76, but not statistically significant, but that was confounded due to crossover. And then you're like, what do I go? Where do I go from here? And you go to the second generation ALK inhibitor, which Michael
0: will now explore Sometimes I think these drugs are like iPhones, you know, you your first one breaks or the battery starts to die and you just go to the next one. I, before I start my study, Josh, I do want to come back to something that you noted, which is the commonality of brain metastases. And this is a clinical point. At, I don't know if it's the same in your center, but in my center. So if someone has a complete response or they're on treatment and they're responding it is not always the case that we image their brain as part of their standard follow-up if they are known to not have brain meds or if they're not known to have brain meds. However, with ALK, it doesn't matter if they've been in CR for 10 years or whatever. We always tend to do at least a CT, frequently an MRI, every time we quote-unquote restage or rescan them. Is that is that your practice as well, Josh? We do lots of
1: MRIs because they can always be asymptomatic and potentially treated. So, yeah, we do it a lot. I haven't seen many ELK rearrangements. I've seen maybe a handful, if that. I've seen far more EGFR mutations in my centre where we do do regular MRIs, but I guess most of the time with patients who are on this treatment, they're metastatic, right? So you're always going to be doing MRIs to check and make sure there's no disease
0: progression. That is true, although, yeah... I will say that I it, it's it feels very odd to be ordering MRI brains on someone who's had a CR a complete response for for years and years anyway CRs are fortunately a not uncommon occurrence with electinib much like subscribing to our podcast and leaving <laughs> a review yes okay jo- Josh has um, fulfilled his contractual obligation and so he'll go he'll he'll leave now but electinib is uh, an agent, an anti-alk tyrosine kinase inhibitor that was the focus of the ALEX study, published in 2017 in the New England Journal of Medicine, with an update in 2020. At the time, as Josh mentioned, first-line, first-generation TKIs were the standard of care for patients with mutant non-small cell lung cancer, the main one being chrysotinib. The median PFS with chrysotinib is about 10.9 months, which is good for non-small cell lung cancer, but Alex will do unto chrysotinib what osimertinib has done to alectinib and that is render it extinct. Alex is a phase three open label randomized controlled trial that compares electinib with crizotinib in the first line treatment. 303 patients were randomized one-to-one to receive either electinib or chrysotinib, with the eligibility criteria being greater than 18 years, ECOG zero to one, treatment naive, Patients were allowed to have brain meds so long as they were asymptomatic, and notably, they were also allowed to have leptomeningeal disease, which is the textbook exclusion criteria for the vast majority of studies that you will see. They were also allowed to have previous uh, radiotherapy if it was completed more than 14 days prior to enrolment. Patients were stratified on the basis of ECOG, race, whether they were Asian or non Asian. ALK has a very high incidence in the Asian non smoking population and the presence of absence the presence or absence of cns metastases at baseline interestingly crossover was not allowed but speaking of covering ourselves josh the authors did a cheeky little bit of covering where they said uh, in countries where electinib was already available some patients might have received electinib but it wasn't us we swear the endpoint The primary endpoint for Alex was uh, progression-free survival, with the secondary endpoints being time to CNS progression, overall response rate, overall survival, duration of response, the rate and duration of CNS response, and safety. In terms of demographics, brief notes on these as always, the median age, Josh, you hit it on the head in your introduction – Fifty-four in the electinib arm versus fifty-eight in the chrysotinib arm. The majority were female of non-Asian descent, but only about fifty-four to fifty-five percent. Majority were also non-smokers, and about forty percent in both groups had CNS metastases at baseline. So, in terms of the results for Alex, now it's important to note uh, as a previous take of this episode failed to mention is that there is a difference between Alex which is the worldwide study of electinib and J Alex which is the uh, study of Japanese patients with electinib so we're talking about the final published results for the worldwide Alex study which were published in 2020 the median duration of survival follow up was 37 versus 23 months The progression-free survival was 34.8 versus 10.9 months with a hazard ratio of 0.43. And this was higher regardless of the presence or absence of CNS metastases. At four years, 38% of patients with CNS mets at baseline uh, upon entry to study in the electinim arm had not progressed. And the median progression-free survival in patients with baseline CNS Mets was 25 versus 7.4 months, so significant benefit in progression-free survival. In terms of overall survival, now this was actually not reached in the electinib arm versus 57.4 months in the crizotinib arm. Now, I should take a slight detour here and make note that the J-Alex study did not actually demonstrate a five-year overall survival benefit or a overall overall survival benefit of electinib compared to chrysotinib. It should be worth noting with those particular results, without going into too much detail, that 82% of patients in the chrysotinib arm subsequently got electinib. And so there is some debate about how much success of chrysotinib was basically being propped up by electinib but the 5 year overall survival rate in the global alex study was 62.5 versus 45.5% which was consistent across subgroups with the exception of patients who were ecog 2 and patients who were active smokers but there was about 20 patients in both of these subgroups and josh i know you're going to set some hazard ratio records uh, later in the episode but houses for a confidence interval record for patients who are ECOG 2 of which they're about 20 the confidence interval for hazard ratio was something like 0.38 to 10 so it could be 60 or 70 percent better or it could be 1000 percent worse if you are ECOG 2 I'm going to say they had zero confidence in look, looking at that result Yes, absolutely. The p value was was probably also 10. In terms of the subsequent therapy for the electinib arm, patients received crizotinib 13% of the time, lorlatinib, coming up to the crown study uh, that you'll describe, Josh, 13% of the time, progratinib and seritinib were also noted. In terms of safety, this was similar across both groups with the rates of grade 3 to 5 adverse events, adverse events leading to dose reduction, interruption, and treatment discontinuation, similar across both groups. The most common adverse events in the electinib arm were constipation, fatigue, anemia, hyperbilirumidemia, myalgias, and AST-ALT derangement. So in terms of conclusions for the Alex study, I mean, we've got this j Alex overall survival data hanging over our heads, but would we still give electinib over chrysotinib? Absolutely. I mentioned before that electinib has done unto chrysotinib basically what osimertinib has done to the earlier generation EGFR TKIs, there's now no reason to do it. Electinib has good CNS penetrance, the toxicity appears to be well tolerated, and there's no reason to give anything other than electinib at this point in the first line setting. However, Josh, is there a challenger seeking to unseat the newly crowned king More of an intern than a challenger. A secretary.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, well, let's be honest. uh, We're we're all a bit of a secretary. A
0: court jester.
1: A court jester. I I have great secretaries and I don't want to kind of degrade them. So sorry, all the interns and secretaries out there. You're both wonderful. And And court jesters.
0: You're also wonderful.
1: That too. I have a court jester on tap whenever. But I am talking about... Yes, the underdog, the contender, the hazard ratio king or queen, potentially. Law, latinib. Is it the law? Not just yet, but it might be soon. It is a novel third generation elk inhibitor and has the broadest coverage of elk resistant mutations that has been identified. Michael, I remember seeing this picture and I will link it on our website of all of the res- the elk mutations that it actually does cover and it is a lot more than brigatinib, electinib crizotinib Seritonib, you know, Michelinib. No, it's just Michael. Um, but there's there's so yes, it's really interesting. It's also been designated to have really good blood brain barrier penetration, which as Mikey so eloquently put, is really important.
0: No comment? None at all. I'm just basking in your assessment of my
1: eloquence. Thank you. Well, well, you guys can be the judge of who is going to take the crown with today's episode, but the trial is called the crown and it was a randomized global phase three study comparing lalatinib versus crizotinib, which at the time this trial was started was the standard of care. So you might take that into account. It's like, Oh, why not electinib Josh? Electinib is the new king. Well, because it wasn't around. Um, at that point and it was in those that were previously untreated with advanced elk positive non-small cell lung cancer and recruitment occurred between 2017 and 2019 patients that were included was the standard elk mutation histologically confirmed asymptomatic treated or untreated brain mets were eligible and ECOG from zero to two endpoint primary was progression free survival via via blinded independent clinical review and secondary was progression-free survival by investigator with overall survival, objective response rate, overall intracranial response, safety and toxicity noted. The analysis was going to occur when 75% or 177 events of disease progression or death occurred. And the results were 296 patients underwent randomization, about half to lorlatinib, about half to crizotinib. The characteristics were quite similar to what Michael discussed, you know, 44% of each arm was about Asian and the other 50 was sort of white. And there was sort of a splattering of other ethnicities, you could say. Now let's look at the efficacy. So there's two, there's an updated analysis and an original analysis. So, I think, Michael, I will talk about both because I have a bit of time. But you've got progression-free survival, so patients alive without disease progression. The initial analysis showed a medium PFS not reached versus 9.3 in chrysotinib. And the progression-free survival percentage at the 12-month mark was 78% versus 39%. So that's, that's, that's a pretty nice number. And that, that's at 12 months, everyone. Survival without CNS progression was in latinib well, the, the hazard ratio was 0.07%. <laughs> Sorry, should not be laughing, guys, but the hazard ratio just blew me away. So hazard ratio for intracranial progression was 007 so it is
0: ninety three percent better than chrysotinib. I thought that was a p value for a second <laughs> no that is a hazard ratio and i that's <laughs> that's the that's the uh, that's the champion <laughs> that's the crayon right that that um, is the hazard ratio champion
1: <laughs> and the hazard ratio for c n s progression without previous non c n s progression or death was zero point zero six percent so that's even better and overall survival. You know was zero point seven two but not statistically significant so that that's already kind of blew me away you know just ridiculously good, and what you can see is that the confirmed objective response was 76% versus 58% favoring lorlatinib. So already you've got a 20% benefit. You've got a complete response in about 3% of patients, a partial response in 73% of patients, and stable disease in 13 So that makes it almost 90% of patients are going to respond with lorlatinib versus probably about 80% in the crizotinib arm, which is pretty just phenomenal. And that, that was kind of the initial analysis, everyone, right? So that that's kind of the really exciting part. Let's go to the updated analysis, and then I will talk about everything else. So this was from September the 20th, 2021. Median duration of follow-up was 36.7 months. So median duration of response was 33.3 months in the latinib arm and 9.6 months in the chrysotinib. So just Brilliant. What I note is that 30% of patients in the lalatinib did have a dose reduction, and at cutoff, 33% of patients in the latinib group and 63% of patients in the Crizotinib group had disease progression by blinded independent clinical review or had died. When we're talking about PFS, again, it's still, the median PFS has not been reached in the latinib arm, and the crizotinib is still 9.3 months with a hazard ratio of 0.27, which is, you know, that's osimertinib territory here. And if you're looking at specific numbers, what's the percentage of patients? So that's 64% of patients in the latinib arm, have not had any progression, and 19% of patients in the crizotinib arm had not had any progression. And that is three years. That is a three-year mark. So just brilliant, bloody brilliant. And then if you look, I think the AU that I just discussed there was the intention to treat population. In those with baseline brain metastases, so this is what I'm talking about, progression-free survival now, what we saw was a... Medium progression-free survival, again, not reached. The 7.2 months in the crizotinib arm, a hazard ratio of 0.21, so slightly better than the intention-to-treat population. And the percentage was 50% of patients still had ongoing response and progression-free survival at that three-year mark. Small numbers, so 37 in the latinib arm and 39 in the crizotinib arm, but still quite incredible. And those with brain metastases, the hazard ratio was 0.29. Again, still the median progression-free survival was not reached. Michael, is there a theme? I think there's a theme.
0: The theme is very, very small hazard ratios, if I'm honest.
1: 0.06, that is what I want to see. And so the three-year progression-free survival, 64% of patients had not progressed, which is just... Incredible. If we do a dirty comparison to some other drugs, progratinib had a median progression-free survival of 24 months, and then the PFS of three years was 43%, so 43%, 43% of patients hadn't progressed, and electinib was 46% for the PFS, with a median PFS of 34 months. Objective response rate intracranially was 83% versus 72% in the control arm. Now, I haven't mentioned this, but I will bring it up, toxicities there were toxicities mikey and that's something important to note so adverse events that were worse in the and things that i think if you're treating with this drug you should know hypercholesterolemia hypertriglyceridemia, edema weight gain peripheral neuropathy and cognitive issues was four or five times more that at the chrysotinib arm and if you look at the chrysotinib what was worse the classic tki Adverse events, so diarrhea, nausea, vision, vomiting, ALT increase, anorexia, and dry mouth. What I found fascinating and why I bring this up is adverse events leading to dose interruption or reduction in lorlatinib. So dose interruption was 49% and dose reduction was 21%. If you look at chrysotinib, really similar. So dose interruption, 47% and dose reduction in 15%. Interestingly, fewer people discontinued lorlatinib than crizotinib. So, despite having more tox, people stayed on it longer. So, I have questions about duration of tox, severity of tox, and it's all there in the in the article. But when you look at adverse events, you know the grading and real life exposure is just two very different questions. So, why is this not yet taken the crown and what is the issue with this trial? So a couple of things, what I've spoken about, a lot of these were not intended analyses. So while we've got improved data, it wasn't actually the outcome that they were looking for in the updated analysis. So we don't have mature overall survival. And so that's a little bit hard. And if you look at the subsequent therapy, Mikey, 22% of lorlatinib and 70% of chrysotinib receive at least one systemic and to cancer therapy, the main reason for discontinuation in lorlatinib was disease progression, and 27% was other reasons. With other treatments received, lorlatinib was chrysotinib. They actually switched it, and that's quite interesting. And in the chrysotinib, they went to lorlatinib and some other sort of t- alternative TKIs. So very exciting. Still needs some updated analysis on this particular drug, much like electinib, Mikey. I don't know. Maybe it will fall flat. It doesn't look like it's going to fall flat. These n- these numbers are, you know, I'm frothing. I'm I'm just like shaking in my boots, like Puss in Boots. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm
0: Antonio Banderas when he wasn't cool. No, he's always been cool. What can I say? <laughs> Absolutely. There's no universe where Antonio Banderas is not cool. <laughs>
1: True. Um,
0: I I completely agree with you, Josh. This is, Lulatnip is something that is sort of lurking in the shadows and will be very interesting to see its uh, final analysis. Oh, one thing before you finish off, Mikey, I forgot to mention.
1: You might be asking, how do you then rationalize? What do you start with and what drug do you move to? So when doing some bit of research, they still recommend electinib as the first line. And then if you progress on electinib, move to lorlatinib rather than the other way around. And chrysotinib, I think if you're in a country that doesn't have either of yeah,
0: these. and I think that's um, the current state of practice for as long as uh, we don't have overall survival data for lorlatinib. So, Josh, that concludes our initial dive. We're currently at 10,000 leagues under the lung cancer, but would you like to tell us what we're going to do as we dive deeper into the darkness?
1: I feel I feel this is too soon, but I really don't want to get into a submarine. I think I've decided that at the end of this episode. <laughs>
0: That's not topical or anything.
1: No, no, no. So next week we have something even crazier. We're going 50,000 leagues under the sea. We are going to meet the Loch Ness Monster and- The giant I don't know, squid.
0: Um, is the famous one.
1: The giant squid and, you know, we're going to find the the lost city of Atlantis is part of that, that journey. But we're going to look at ROS1 and KRAS mutations and the new and upcoming targeted therapies in this cohort. Michael, I just love this. Like our future is going to be targeted therapy for patients who never had any options going back three years. So three years ago, you really had pretty much nothing. And now you have treatment options and it's just... So brilliant. Anyway, so I'm really excited. I'm not excited to get into a, uh, into anything that goes ten thousand leagues under the sea, but I'm excited to read about it. And as such, I look forward to joining you then.
0: We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind you'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonk.com. That's inquisitiveonk.com.